Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And you know how excited I am about today's guest, Onika Mays. Onika, I don't know if you know this, I might have shared this with you, but I learned about you when I got on a coaching call and my client who works at Cisco had just finished a virtual program that you did. She started our call by saying, before we start, I just want to tell you, I have a recommendation for someone for you to have on your podcast. She was amazing. Her name's Anika Mays, and you have to have her on your podcast. I'm like, okay. I was so thrilled when you were interested and we got to connect. Just to tell our listeners just a little bit about you before I turn it over to you, Onika transitioned to yoga and meditation from a career in corporate retail, a 10 plus year career, and she is now the first mindfulness coach at Rikers Island Correctional Facility, where she works one-on-one with incarcerated folks. Onika believes that our justice system needs to focus on transformation and restoration rather than punishment. And this idea of liberation and compassion is woven into her work, whether it's in a jail or teaching yoga or any of the many other things that she brings out into the world. So Onika, we are so excited you are joining us. I want to turn it over to you to tell us a little bit about your life and your journey and some of the ups and downs and... We'll go from there. Sherry and Anne, I'm so excited to be here today. And I love your podcast. I love the way that folks are really allowed just to talk about their journey and let things unfold. Even out loud, you hear it with some folks on the podcast, like having as aha moments as they're even telling their story. Thank you for that intro. I work in a jail. I work in Rikers Island Correctional Facility. And I think if I had been told I was going to do that 15 years ago, I probably would have laughed at you and said, you are out of your mind. That is never going to happen. But in thinking about it, I think it was inevitable. When I look at my life and I I go back, I wanted a place to belong. And I wanted to feel connected. And that's not to say that I haven't had like a really incredible life. I think I have. I had parents who gave me a really magical childhood. I grew up in New Jersey. Often I was the only black face in the classroom or in my neighborhood. So I didn't think I I felt like I fit in anywhere. And I had lots of friends. You know, I wasn't like a social outcast. And then I started to interact more with black kids, but it felt like I wasn't black enough for black kids and wasn't white enough for the white kids in the neighborhood. So I was kind of on the outskirts. And I think my whole life has felt like that, always looking for a place to to fit in. Even as a kid, I think I was a seeker. I was always really curious about where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? Which is so wild for a kid to think about these things. I even remember when I was five or six and, and I was walking to the car with my mom and I saw like these sun rays coming down from the sky. I didn't grow up in the church. And I remember telling my mom because some kid had told me, mom, you see that right there? That's like a staircase to heaven. So people are going to heaven right now. And she said to me, no, they're not because there is no heaven because there is no God because my mom's an atheist. And I remember looking at her saying, "Mm, 
I don't know about that. You know, she's my mom, so I'm just going to say it. But I never, I wasn't sure. And that, I think, typifies my entire life. Mm. Listening to other folks, hearing folk, what other folks have to say. But there was something inside of me that I wanted to trust but couldn't quite trust. And that theme showed up again and again in my life. And when I went to college and started to connect with a lot more Black kids who I felt like had my same experience, I still wasn't quite connecting. And that may have been because I was stepping into my sexuality and realizing that I was a little bit more fluid than I initially thought. And then when I started working at Barnes and Noble, I worked in books. And even in that career, I, I was I was really fortunate and, and sort of climbed up the ladder very quickly. And I was one of the first Black district managers. There weren't a lot when I, when I was promoted. I was one out of, I think, like 70, 75. And again, felt like I was kind of on the outside. It was always this thing. And I'll never forget, this was before I got promoted. I was a store manager. And we were cleaning up for the night. You know, books are all over the place. And I was hanging out and putting books away with a med student. He was going to med school, but working part time at the bookstore. And he was South Asian. And we were putting books away in the religion section. And we reconnected years later. And he said that I was asking him about Hinduism because he was Hindu. And we were talking about yoga and all of these things. So I think these seeds really have always been there. And I was always planting them. And then fast forwarding mid-career at Barnes & Noble, I was a district manager. It seemed like the whole world was opening up for me. And I wanted more than anything to be COO of a big company. That's really what I wanted. I had a great job. I, I had all of the trappings that anybody could think of. You know, I had a really fancy apartment looking at the Statue of Liberty in Jersey City. And amazing, great car and vacations and all of this stuff. And I had all of these things. And then out of nowhere, somebody who I had been dating off and on died in Iraq. And it left a really big hole in my life. I was 37-ish at the time. And I remember thinking, like, this isn't a dress rehearsal. We, we only get one spot at this life thing. And I started to look around. And by look around, I mean inside, looking at my inside, my interior landscape and thinking, something's missing. And have I been chasing things that didn't really fit within alignment who I was as that kid asking about where it all comes from? From the time you were a little kid, you were a questioner, right? And you were questioning and you were a seeker and you ended up working in a bookstore surrounded by books. I'm just curious, am I reading something into there that doesn't exist or was that not a coincidence? You know, that's really interesting. I've never really thought about it. I think the big influence for even working at a bookstore, my mom worked at Princeton University Bookstore for a little while. And books were always a big part of my life. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I went to college. At first, I was really sure I wanted to be a lawyer and, and then decided that probably wasn't it. I had secretly always wanted to be a writer. That was my passion. And I was really interested in writing, but was really afraid to say it out loud. It didn't seem practical. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to make my parents proud and and do the right thing. So as I was thinking about maybe I'll go to school and get an MFA, like that would be a way to sort of get into that. I started working at Barnes and Noble around books and it was retail. But when you're working around 
people who love books and people who are selling books, it's really not like working in retail at all. It was an amazing experience because I worked at Barnes and Noble when it was like everywhere. Bookstores were like the third place, right? Like that was where people went. They were home or work or out of Barnes and Noble or in a cafe somewhere. That is where I, th- I think that that came from. And it was an incredible experience. And I think it, it did open me up. I was always a reader, but I think when I worked at Barnes and Noble, that same curiosity was always there. And I always got book recommendations from folks who I was working with or, or when I was a store manager who were working with me. I always was like, what are you reading right now that I wouldn't have picked up myself? Because I always wanted to see what interested and, and lit other people on fire. Yeah. You were just starting to tell us about when you lost the person that you were dating. One of the things you said early on was about not totally trusting sort of that voice inside. And so I'm wondering if this was a turning point for you where you started to trust a little bit more. Yes and no, right? At first, when he died, I was in total denial. When somebody dies overseas, there's not a lot of closure. And they say you shouldn't make any really big decisions when you're grieving. So I decided to ignore all of that. And I got a brand new job. <laughs> like I got recruited away that, you know, to fancy telecommunications company. I quickly got engaged to somebody that I don't think I was really in love with and who wasn't really in love with me. And it all fell apart really quickly. And while I was I was successful at the job from a leadership perspective, I was thrown into a company that was I'm a lot more cutthroat than I was used to. And I grew up at Barnes and Noble. So I was used to being the go-to person at Barnes and Noble, but then I wasn't that person anymore at this new company. I struggled. I struggled because I wasn't a shark. I was really passionate about what I did. um, And I was really good at what I did, but I wasn't good at like taking shots at people. Playing the game. Yeah, it wasn't me. And I thought it was me and I realized it wasn't me. And the person that I worked for got let go. And then I got fired. And getting fired was a real wake up call. Like I never really failed at anything before. They had to tell me three times that I was fired before I actually- <laughs> before, you, before it sort of sunk in. Before it sunk in. And I was like, wait, I, what? What do, you, what do you mean I'm not going to be here anymore? Like, wait, what? They had to actually say, your leadership is no longer wanted. Those words had to, because I was not connecting with it. And the writing was on the wall. I remember talking to my father and, and he said, I think there's a target on your back. I was like, no, no, you know, I can solve anything. I've got this, you know, I'm a great leader. But he was right. And so um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I got another job very quickly because I was really good at what I did. But I didn't, I didn't like it. At that point, I had realized this isn't for me anymore. I quit that job, but I actually was still so afraid. And you were just saying this. I I didn't want to trust that that feeling in my stomach. I actually told people I got fired again. It was safer for you to tell people that you got fired than that you had stood up and quit because it wasn't a good environment for you. Why was that easier? I was too uncomfortable and too afraid to say to people, I want to chase my dreams. And I didn't know how practical that sounded. And do you know, I didn't actually even admit any of this out loud until I was interviewed on a news show six or seven months ago. (laughs) And my mother watched it and she called me as it was airing. She was like, you quit your job? I said, (laughs) that's the response that I knew was going to happen. Right, right. Well, there's the validation for a really good choice not to tell my family. (laughs) Right. So I'm curious if we could just stay with this for a couple minutes because I think this is such a powerful statement that 
for you, this idea of standing up for yourself and it sounding a little bit like being perceived in a way that you didn't want to be perceived, it was easier to tell a story that many people would go the opposite direction on, right? And say, I'm too embarrassed to say I was fired or I feel too much shame over being fired. And so I'm going to say I quit. And so I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about what was it that was so scary about saying, I stood up for myself. I'm chasing my dreams. I had realized at that point that I had made a lot of decisions that were based on what other people thought I should be doing. And I don't even necessarily mean specific people. I just mean like society in general. I should have a great job. I should be making a lot of money. I should, you know, I should have the condo. I should have- I should, I should, I should, I should. I was shooting on myself a lot. And so I was too afraid to say, I don't actually really know what I want to do, but I know it's not this. And just because I'm good at something, do I have to do it? I had a great education. I had incredible parents. I had this great life. So I was really capable at so many things. But just because I was capable, should I pursue that path? And I had never really tapped into what does my heart want me to do? Where's my passion? What lights me on fire rather than getting validation and someone saying, wow, you did that really well. Yeah. So how did you start doing that? How did you start tapping into your heart and trusting yourself and and figuring out what you were passionate about? I went back to yoga. I, I had done a yoga class when I worked at Barnes and Noble and I liked it and it lit something up in me, but I was still a little too intimidated by it. So I didn't practice that much. And then I went back to a yoga class. And I just started going to yoga every single day. I'm in New York and I was in a a hot yoga class in Manhattan after work at like six o'clock. And there's 60 people in a room that's 110 degrees. The humidity is like 100%, practically raining, so sweaty, mat to mat. And this teacher, her name is Catherine Price. I was in chair pose, right? That's when your, your feet are together, your knees are together. It's like you're sitting in a chair. It's a really intense position. And she says to the whole class, you can change or be comfortable, but you can't do both at the same time. Woo! Woo! And tears just started running down my face. Wow. So she just cracked you open. She wide open. Sherry wide open. And I remember thinking, oh, no, I'm going to have to start all over. I have a lump in my throat right now, even thinking about it, because I went home and I cried. I cried and cried and cried. And then I called my dad and I said, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I went down. They were living in South Carolina at the time and I went to go visit them. And and we talked about just some options. And he said, you've been going to yoga a lot. Why don't, why don't you think about being a yoga teacher? So I did. I did a yoga teacher training. It opened me up and it made me see that the thing that I had been looking for, that sense of belonging, was actually just missing inside myself. I didn't feel like I felt I belonged to myself. And I found that when I practiced yoga. I found that on my mat when I could take a deep breath in and out and realize everything that I'd been searching for was actually already inside me. Sherry and I are both yoga teachers as well. And I'm so curious about how you got to that point of really being able to know yourself and know that you needed to belong at home here and your heart first before you could belong anywhere else. Was it the practice? Like talk us through a little bit about how you came home. 
It was the practice in the sense Shavasana, which is the pose, a corpse pose when you're laying down, usually at the end of class and everybody loves it, right? Because you're resting. But after working so hard on my mat and then resting, I, it was one of the first times that I was able to really be still and really let myself go inside and realize there was so much spaciousness and fullness there at the same time. And I hadn't really experienced that. I was a tennis player and a swimmer, and I even ran track in high school for a little while. And that was sort of all competing externally. But when I practiced yoga, it was actually a practice of getting to know yourself. And I was lucky because I had some wonderful teachers who talked about this as I was going through an asana class. So to be in Shavasana and just to be with myself without any expectation, it opened me up. So then when I was out in the world off of my yoga mat, I was taking that with me. So I started to see things differently. And it was a transformative experience. And I realized that I wanted to share this with other people. Like I was one of those people who was transformed by yoga, who was like, everybody has to go to a yoga. <laughs> the yoga evangelist, right? <laughs> you need to go to yoga. You need right. to go, you to, need yoga. To, go to yoga. <laughs> <laughs> that was like my answer for everything. And so I started just to teach and I did a bunch of trainings. I did a therapeutic yoga teacher training. I did trauma informed training. I went to massage school. I became a Reiki practitioner. I was just really hungry to understand how these practices could be transformative. And at the same time, because I was so fortunate in my career, but I wasn't mentoring or giving back in ways that I'd seen my dad do. I said, you know what? I need to share this and I need to share it from my heart and not just always try to make money from it. So that's when I, that's what led me to teach actually at jail. I was volunteering and going in once a week and it was a trek. It was, it took me almost two hours to go once a week to go teach these practices to folks who were incarcerated, but it, it shifted me. And the first time that I walked into Rikers, I remember thinking, um, I belong here. So there's a lot of different ways you could have shared these practices. There's a lot of different populations and a lot of different groups and a lot of underserved folks all over the place, but somehow you were drawn into helping people that are incarcerated. Where did that come from? Do you know how that evolved? Yeah, it's. I wish I could say I had some really incredible revelation about it, but I didn't. I had a conversation with my cousin. A lot of folks in my family have always been socially active and politically active. And my grandparents were very politically active. That idea of social justice was always kind of there. It, it's in our DNA. But I think looking back, and I'm, I'm just thinking about this right now, I think I was interested in the prisons I had created for myself. Prisons of our own mind is our Susan Alessic, another guest who's joined us before from Enneagram Prison Project. Yeah. So what prisons had you created in your own mind and body? Prisons of expectation. And I think prisons of materialism, I think, of having stuff to validate who I was as a person and just how I should show up in the world. I think I was really fixated on what I was supposed to be as a person, as a woman, as a black woman, as a person who was queer, as all of these things that it was all still the should, 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 should. And yoga felt like a way out of that. And meditation is what really transformed me. I think I got a little physically addicted to the asana practice because I did feel so good. And then I, I was still using, you know, that, that practice as a way to validate myself as a person unconsciously, like, you know, 
practicing handstands and all this stuff and how can I bind and all of these things that, you know, can happen to yogis when they really get into the asana practice. And I hurt my shoulder um, so I practice for a while and I started sitting a lot more and it was in the stillness that I really started to see like, oh, I'm still pretty hooked on stuff. I'm still pretty hooked. And it's so interesting because you you made the comment that the first time it happened to you was when you were in Shavasana, right? After the intensity of that hot yoga class. And then in, in hearing you describe, you ran track and you played tennis and that even in physical practices that are healthy and good for your body, there was still almost a striving energy. And it wasn't until you just got still and allowed yourself to be with yourself that you were able to let go of some of that striving energy. Yeah, the striving, I think, is it's a big part of our culture, right? We're always looking to do more, be bigger, all, the, all those kinds of things. It was ingrained, I think, in me in a lot of ways. And unhooking from that felt really terrifying and liberating at the same time. And then I realized that I really just wanted to end my suffering. I just wanted to end my suffering. And the way through that was by being tender with my own heart and compassionate with my own heart and allowing my heart to break in all of the ways that it needed to. Right. Because really you're seeking to end your own suffering, but in some ways you need to suffer more in order to actually get to where there's some more peace. Yeah. Yeah. And so how are you bringing all of these learnings forward to the work you've been doing at Rikers? It's been a really incredible journey and a, and a tough one. It, it really is emotionally draining, but I still think very powerful. I think the biggest thing that I had to do was stop striving for it. Striving and judgment are, are things that I'm always kind of working with. And so when I first started to do this work, I had these really lofty ideas of bringing things in for people to experience. And then I had to realize that it's really not about me. It's not about me at all. It's about me sharing, but really creating space and allowing people to have the experience that they need to have. And that's got nothing to do with me and everything's with them. And I found that, you know, the teachers who have been the biggest lights in my life have been teachers who have said very little and really left space for people to have their own experiences. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the one-on-one meditation work you do, because I think, I'm sure it's not common, but it's not uncommon for prisons to have yoga classes. Anne and I both know a few people who have taught in prisons. I'd love to hear you talk about working one-on-one with people in prison. Yeah, Shifting from a group class to working one-on-one is a very different dynamic. And I work in the women's facility. So I work with women, trans folks, and non-binary folks. And when people come see me, they can opt in to be part of this wellness program. So it's, it's meditation or mindfulness. I'm the mindfulness coach. That's my role. Or acupuncture. I work with an acupuncturist and she's also unbelievable and also a wellness coach. So when people come see me, I ask a whole bunch of questions at first. Like, how are you sleeping? Because insomnia is a really big problem in jail. And we talk about anxiety and how folks are managing anxiety. So the atmosphere is different because it's intimate and it's in an, I have an office. 
And it's fairly quiet considering it's a jail. And people really open up. I usually do like a guided meditation first so people get an experience of what that's like. But then sessions are really what folks need in that moment. So sometimes it might be yoga. Sometimes it might be meditation. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's having people get out of pain. Beds and jail are not comfortable. So there's a lot of lower back pain. There's a lot of neck pain. And then there's pain just from the stress of incarceration, being separated from their families. I work with so many mothers who are desperately missing their children. So that manifests physically inside body. So the practices, they're really varied and really unique and really custom. And the point, I think, is to help folks relieve their own suffering while they're inside, but also to provide tools for folks outside when they get home. I can't tell you how many people who have said to me, I've never taken a deep breath like that before, or I've never wrapped my arms around myself and given myself a hug or told myself that I love myself before. Those were things that that hadn't happened. So it's a powerful experience. And, and I connect with people really quite deeply. I'm, I'm not an officer. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a person. So I think a, a lot of the walls can come down because there's no expectation when people come see me. Yeah, I'm wondering about that experience of getting to witness somebody in this kind of transformation, flowering, um, wide open vulnerable place, especially after having done so much work to get to that place for yourself. So how is that to be witness? It's humbling. And I consider the work sacred. Like I don't really talk about what happens because it's like it's so sacred to, to watch people have that experience. And also I recognize that I'm seeing people sometimes more often than their families are. And that's a big deal. And I take that very seriously. I think it was last year or the year before, I was fortunate to be in conversation with Dr. Cornell West. The Africana Studies kid in me who was 19 was like just blown away. Geeking out. Yeah, he's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, totally geeking out. And he had said to me, it's really incredible to bear witness to people at that part of their journey and to, to remind them that this is only a small part of their journey. When you look at life, that can just be a blink of an eye. To really just hold that space is, is a really powerful thing and to really show up with love because I think ultimately that's what I'm doing too. Sherry, you had mentioned in my intro that um, I do believe in disrupting systems of oppression and I think it can be done with love. I don't always think it has to be done with fighting, but what you can show up with your heart being really full and see people, not just people who are incarcerated, but officers and staff and show up with a loving heart, it shifts and changes things. That's the only thing that love can do. It only lets people in. You know, it's interesting. My husband and I have a friend who was incarcerated for about three years, was white collar crime. And he was in Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. I'm in Raleigh. We would go to New York and visit him about three times a year. And I would look around at some of the corrections officers and for some of them, not all of them, you could palpably feel their pain. There was just this sense of it's not just the people who are incarcerated in this room that are in pain. I think what you're saying is so powerful around you going into this space and bringing compassion and a loving heart to everyone that's in that space 
just that by itself is transformative. Yeah. And I didn't get here right away. You know, when I first started going in, I was a little reductive in my thinking. Officers were bad. People who were incarcerated needed support. And it was like me and my yoga mat was like my sword of justice, right? (laughs) So it's so embarrassing even to say out loud, but I'm happy. I'm just wondering if you had a theme song. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I really, I probably did need some theme music. It was, it was was really a, a little ridiculous, but there was this one time when I was still volunteering and I was walking out with an officer because, you know, I had to be escorted in and out. And he was asking me about yoga because he wanted to start taking yoga. And he was asking me about studios. We were having a nice little conversation. And he said, you know, I'm retiring in a few days. And I said, oh, really? What are you going to do next? And he said, you know, I don't know. But it's going to be something good to make up for all of this. And he kind of just waved his hand around at everything. And I remember getting chills all over my body when he said that. And um, when you're in a jail, things get cut off very quickly. There's not a lot of closure. When he had said that, we had gotten to the end of this hallway. And think conversations just end. You don't ever really say goodbye. And he had to go one way and I was going out. And that was the that was the end of it. That was the end of the conversation. But I think about him all the time. And my heart tells me that he did do something good. It, it just does. I just kind of feel that. That's what it's like. And I think he first shifted for me. These officers just aren't people in these blue uniforms, but people are just want a job. They want to take care of their families. They're trying to do what they think is the right thing. And when you start to get to know people, you can't just put them in this box when you know that people have families and their kids are going to college or, you know, all this stuff that's happening with their parents and you get to know that they have siblings, they're people. And once you make people into your in-group and you make them part of this sort of larger family, you can't help but love them. And it's complicated and messy, but that's what family is, right? It's complicated and messy, but you love them. So you try to find a way through. Yeah. I mean, what a beautiful sentiment and and how much of a better world would we have if we just could have a little bit more understanding. And it doesn't mean we're always going to agree with people or their choices or how they conduct themselves or whatever, but being able to really see them as human, I think is is absolutely the core of humanity itself, right? Like being able to see each other as humans, so important. I use the phrase just like me a lot. I'm not a Buddhist, but a lot of my meditation training has been um, rooted in Buddhism. And the idea of just like me is a really powerful tool that I think about a lot, particularly if I feel like I'm in conflict with somebody or if I feel triggered by something. I can say, just like me, this person is just trying to do the best that they can. I don't think people wake up and say, I'm going to try to figure out how I can do the worst possible job as a human today. I don't think that happens. I just don't. I think they wake up wanting to do the best. And no, I do. So if I can say that and see that in other people, we can try to find that place of, if not common ground, common understanding. You should be allowed to exist in the world. and, And so should I, even if we don't see eye to eye. Well, there's something so powerful that I think all of us can take from this idea of just like me, because it's so humanizing. And, you know, this person's losing their shit today, just like me sometimes. Or this person is super excited about this great thing that just happened, just like I am sometimes. And and so I think this just like me is a really powerful thing we can all carry around with us. 
And then it strikes me that it, it even goes a little bit further for me, at least. I know that when I, when my buttons are pushed or I get triggered, it's usually because somebody is doing something that I don't like in myself. Right. And so it extends also not only to the loving part, but it's also like, there it is again. That's why I'm getting pissed off because that's something in me I don't love. Yeah. So I'm curious on one of the podcasts or the videos I was watching, you talked about when you started practicing loving kindness meditation, I I think your exact words were everything changed for you. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that, just with a quick explanation of what the loving kindness meditation is. Yeah. Loving kindness or metta is a practice that's rooted in Buddhism. And it's essentially offering phrases of loving kindness to help end people's suffering and to wish happiness for them. So we say like, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy. You think about someone you love and then you, you offer it to yourself and then you think of a neutral person or we call the familiar stranger and then somebody we call the, the enemy or a difficult person. And generally you don't want to do like the person who's caused you like the most harm in your life, but somebody who's irritated you, right? Who, who, who cut you off on the way to work or who screwed up your dry cleaning, like that kind of thing. And it changed for me because I realized at that moment that I hadn't been tender with my own heart, that there were parts of myself that I was still ashamed of. And there were things that I had done in my past that I think I wanted to still push down. But when I started to offer myself words of happiness and safety, it opened up for me that I could still love every single part of myself, even if there were parts of myself that I wasn't particularly proud of. And it is in that wholeness that I started to show up really differently. And that's when I could see that just like me was such a powerful tool. We have parts of ourselves that aren't great. There are elements of me. I can be super judgy. I'm still super judgy and I work on it. I still have a really quick temper and all of those things I don't love and I'm working on. And I am still worthy of my own, my complete and unconditional friendliness at any given moment. So beautiful and so, so important, not only for ourselves, but for the population that you're working with, but more broadly as well, right? Like just a little bit more tenderness to ourselves. I do think so much of what happens in the world, the negative things that we see is such a reflection of really our internal experience. Right. And what's so, I don't know that ironic is the right word. It's certainly beautiful and maybe a little ironic is that the more you were able to find acceptance in yourself of yourself, the more space you had to send it outwards. And the more you allowed yourself a sense of belonging, the more you were able to hold belonging for other people. And it's really such a beautiful thing that when we really do our own work and when we work on ourselves, it's not navel-gazing, right? It's not selfish. It sets us up to be of so much more service, right, to the people in our world, to the bigger world. And so I just love hearing you describe how explicit it was for you or how you can see it so explicitly as you look back that this work is so much of what you're now putting back out into the world. Yeah. And and I think it's because once I started to sort of overflow with compassion for myself, 
I can make choices for myself that I think before I was relying on others. I think unconsciously, I was still pretty transactional. And so, you know, I would do things, maybe even unconsciously thinking that it would be given back to me. And then I started to fill myself up. I started to realize that, you know, I'm tired, so I need rest. And I don't have to wait for somebody to tell me to rest. I could give myself permission to rest. So I could show up quite differently in the world and also pull myself out of the world if I need to sort of take a break, which I wouldn't have done before. I would have just kept going. And those kinds of things that I think are really transformative. So when I show up in places, I I show up fully and I show up as myself and I'm not empty anymore. Even on days that I feel empty, I'm not because I know that I have that unconditional space to let myself be however I need to be. That's the transformation. Nothing has to change because everything is as it is. That is beautiful. I love it. I'm so curious for our listeners how somebody could actually get started on this journey that you've been modeling for us today. What should they do? What are some things that might help? I think finding a place to do some meditation with a group of people is really powerful. And I say that as somebody who started doing stuff by herself. I think me feeling like I was on the outskirts, I was too afraid, I think, to also feel like I might be rejected by a community. And as much work as I've done by myself, I am more powerful when I'm in community with other people. That has been a really big lesson and journey for me. So finding a community is really important. And there's all different places online. You can find places to sit and loving kindness meditation, I think is a really beautiful practice just to even start meditation with because it's, it's really transformational both inside and out. And I think can really transform relationships. Finding community is such a big part of how I think I take care of myself, that I have other people around that I can rely on. Beautiful. I love it. It's such great advice for our listeners. So I'm really curious as I think back to little Onika, like questioning, telling your mom that, no, I think you're wrong. I do think these are maybe steps up to heaven. If you could go back in time, knowing everything that was to come, What words of wisdom would you whisper in her ear? I think I would tell her to use your voice. Don't be afraid to speak up and to love yourself, to keep making mistakes, keep trying, let yourself fall down. It's all going to be okay. You are absolutely worthy of doing everything that speaks to you. You're absolutely worthy of not knowing what's going to come next and trusting that when you can trust your voice and you use your voice, a path will really open up for you. Oh, I love that. Just such beautiful, beautiful wisdom because you're not asking to change the world in any way. You started with not always trusting yourself. And what I hear you giving your younger self permission to do is to do exactly that. And that doesn't mean things are going to be easy but it does just mean to trust yourself just that little bit so that the mistakes will be made, the opportunities will be had, but it is all going to be okay. Use your voice. Yeah. We can change the world when we change ourselves. Yes. Amen to that. It is so, so true. I think people think that they have to do really big things or be, and I put this in air quotes, an activist or, or, but when we can just reflect on ourselves and, and be in community with other people, transformation is inevitable. 
reimagining a new way to be with each other is just inevitable. Well, that just sounds like the perfect note to wrap up the episode for today. Anika, thank you so, so much for being here with us. This was just such a great conversation. Thank you. You two are so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And to our listeners, we really hope you enjoyed the conversation and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or post it to your own social media. You can find information in previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.